The substantial number of German immigrants who settled in colonial America were but the beginning of a growing tide of immigration of Germans, not only from Germany itself, but also from Austria, Switzerland, Russia, and elsewhere. After the emergence of the United States as an independent nation, Germans became the largest element in the massive immigrations of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Between 1820 and 1970, approximately 7 million Germans immigrated to the United States, constituting 15% of all immigrants during that period. Between 1850 and 1900, Germans were never less than one-fourth of all immigrants to the U.S. During the colonial era, half or more of the German immigrants came as redemptioners, people whose passage across the ocean was paid by others in exchange for a certain number of years of indentured labor thereafter. While individual Germans settled in colonial America from the earliest days of the colonies, and scattered German settlements were attempted as well, the first permanent German settlement in the American colonies was Germantown, Pennsylvania, founded in 1683 near Philadelphia, which ultimately absorbed it in 1707. Germantown was the first of many culturally German enclaves that would be established in the Western Hemisphere, as well as in Russia and Australia. After a poverty-stricken beginning, Germantown became an early focal point of German culture in America, distributing both German-language literature and new German immigrants to Western Pennsylvania. The community became known for its hard-working people, its woven goods, the first paper mill in the colonies, its low crime rate, and the reluctance of its people to hold political office. It was here also that the first protest meeting against slavery in America was held in 1688. German farming communities in Pennsylvania became part of a whole string of German agricultural settlements scattered from upstate New York down through New Jersey and from Pennsylvania southward, forming an almost unbroken chain of German-speaking communities, reaching down through the Cumberland Gap into the Shenandoah Valley, the Carolina-Piedmont region, and on into Georgia. Along these hundreds of miles, Germans tended to cluster together, though other elements, especially the Scotch-Irish, were also present in the region. This was frontier country at the time, and Germans settled in these parts because land was cheap enough for them to afford it. German pioneers cleared forests and built their own farmhouses, schoolhouses, and churches. They were widely known for their industriousness, thrift, neatness, punctuality, and reliability in meeting their financial obligations, as well as for retaining their own German language and customs. Their farms were more productive, and their animals better cared for than those of most other groups. When they took over farms that others had worked, it was said that they often grew rich on farms on which their predecessors had nearly starved. Early German pioneers often had contacts with the aboriginal American Indians, with whom they generally had better relations than did most other European settlers. This pattern of generally good relations between the Germans and the Indians was to continue as the American frontier moved west, though the Germans, like other settlers, were sometimes attacked by the natives and fought fiercely against them. Although German farmers established an enviable reputation, not all German immigrants were farmers. Urban Germans were often skilled artisans and craftsmen, who also soon became well known for the high quality of their work. Steuben glass, printing, ironworks, the Conestoga wagon, and the Kentucky rifle, actually originating in Pennsylvania, were among their products. 
Beer was also brewed in many German settlements, and German names such as Budweiser and Coors remained prominent among the leading American beer companies. German military skills and traditions began playing a major role in American history with the War for Independence. These military skills came not only from such German Americans as John Peter Muhlenberg, but also from a number of top military officers who arrived from Germany for the express purpose of helping to lead the American armies. Chief among these was General Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben, who has been credited with turning the motley military forces of the American colonies into a real army. German-American military men of later times included those with anglicized names, such as General George Custer, Custer among his ancestors, the Indian fighter, and General John J. Pershing, Fershing, commander of the American armies in World War I. German-Americans in the military high command in World War II included General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who led the armies that invaded Normandy, Admiral Chester Nimitz, who commanded the Pacific Fleet, and General Karl Spatz, whose bombers reduced much of Germany to rubble. General Norman Schwarzkopf, commander of the American and Allied forces in the Persian Gulf War of 1991, represented yet another chapter in this long tradition. After the American Revolutionary War, German farmers continued to settle on or near the frontier, but that frontier was now much farther west, in Wisconsin, Missouri, and Texas, for example. Where 18th-century Germans had come from the southwestern part of Germany, 19th-century immigrants came from more diversified origins, and especially from the northwestern part of the country. Many German immigrants gained access to the upper Midwest and the Plains states overland from the East Coast ports, but many others landed at New Orleans and came up the Mississippi River. St. Louis, which was the terminus of steamboat lines from New Orleans, received such a concentration of Germans that by 1845 the city had two German-language daily newspapers. With the development of railroads and canals in the northern states, the immigrant traffic through the port of New Orleans tended to be limited to those headed for Texas or remaining in New Orleans itself. By 1880, there were more than 17,000 Germans in Louisiana nearly 14,000 of them living in New Orleans. They were prominent in artisan crafts and became the sole producers of lager beer in that city. As early as 1850, the principal region in which German immigrants were concentrated was the Upper Midwest, especially Wisconsin, and this remained true as late as 1920. The next largest concentration was in the Middle Atlantic states, in which Germans had first settled in the 18th century. By 1960, the mid-Atlantic states were again the primary destinations of German immigrants. These historic immigrant settlement patterns continued to be reflected in ethnic distribution patterns generations later. In the late 20th century, people of German ancestry constituted 56% of the population of Wisconsin and half or more of the population of four other Midwestern and Great Plains states. During the era of mass immigration, people from particular small areas of Germany often settled together in very specific places in the United States. For example, immigrants from the county of Tecklenburg in the province of Westphalia settled in two adjoining counties in Missouri. Villages were practically transplanted from Germany to rural Missouri, according to one study. Frankfurt, Kentucky was founded by Germans from Frankfurt, Germany, and Grand Island, Nebraska by Schleswig-Holsteiners. Lomira, Wisconsin, was settled almost exclusively by Prussians from Brandenburg, 
while the nearby towns of Hermon and Teresa were settled by Pomeranians. Farther out on the northern plains, Germans re-immigrating from Russia also settled in clusters related to their places of origin. Some of these communities were named for places in Russia, Odessa in North and South Dakota and in Washington State, and Moscow in both Dakotas, or were named for places in Germany, Leipzig, Berlin, and Strasbourg, North Dakota, and Krupp, South Dakota, not to mention Holstein and Kiel in Oklahoma. In the 19th century, there was already an American newspaper called the Odessa Zeitung. Germans from Russia long remained differentiated from other Americans, from Germans from Germany, and among themselves. For example, the Black Sea Germans led a separate existence in the United States, with social patterns quite distinctive from those of Volga Germans. At one time, 95% of the Black Sea Germans were wheat farmers, while only about half the Volga Germans remained in agriculture, and these produced sugar beets. As late as the 1930s, it was estimated that more than half the sugar beet farms in Colorado, Nebraska, Montana, and Wyoming were in the hands of Volga Germans. Germans from Russia were also differentiated by religion. It was estimated that more than four-fifths of all Catholic Black Sea Germans in the United States lived in either North or South Dakota. Even when some of the later generations of Black Sea Germans and Volga Germans resettled in California, they settled separately, the former around Lodi and the latter around Fresno. Just as their forebears had had to adapt their crops to Russian conditions, so the Russian-German immigrants had to adapt once more to American farming conditions and living conditions. The kinds of wheat, tobacco, and watermelons they had grown in Russia had to be replaced by American varieties. Moreover, American homestead laws promoted individual settlement, scattered among many other American and other immigrant farmers, rather than the recreation of whole German colonies, as in Russia. However, where local conditions permitted, such colonies were recreated, as in Ellis County, Kansas, where large tracts of land were bought from the Kansas Pacific Railroad. Moreover, within these German colonies, there were Catholic villages and Protestant villages, with intermarriage between Catholics and Protestants remaining rare on into the 1920s. Even in an urban setting, Volga German factory workers clustered together in Chicago as late as 1930. German immigrants' achievement as farmers in the United States remained outstanding in the 19th and 20th centuries. In eastern Texas, German farmers were by 1880 producing a larger volume of output per farm and on smaller farms than other Texans. In Nebraska, Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming, Germans who had re-immigrated from Russia established good reputations as farmers and had excellent credit ratings at banks. Germans, both from Germany and from Russia, eventually achieved prosperity in Oklahoma after harrowing years of pioneering in a virgin territory. The 19th century saw a general shift of the growing German population from the eastern seaboard states to the Midwest, particularly to the upper Mississippi and Ohio valleys. By the middle of the 19th century, this region contained more than half of all German-born people in the United States. The Midwest was not only the destination of 19th-century German immigrants, but also a destination of East Coast German Americans or their descendants. Not all these Germans were farmers, however. Cities such as Cincinnati, St. Louis, and above all Milwaukee became centers of urban German populations in the 19th century. 
Only 5% of Cincinnati's population was German in 1830, but by 1860, 30% of the city's inhabitants were German. Milwaukee's Germans were 35% of the population. A number of smaller communities were even more completely German, not only in population, but in language as well. Herman, Missouri, for example, had its street signs in German. In rural areas, the concentration of German people and the dominance of the German language were even greater. Whether rural or urban, Germans in the 19th century tended to retain their culture, as their predecessors had done in earlier centuries. The German language could be heard spoken on the streets of Cincinnati or St. Louis, and German-language newspapers appeared daily in 15 American cities. These daily newspapers ranged across the country, from the New Yorker Staatszeitung to the Cincinnati Volksblatt, the Chicago Abendpost, the Louisville Anzeiger, and the Deutsche Zeitung in New Orleans. Approximately four-fifths of the entire foreign-language press in the United States was German. There were also innumerable German associations, whether gymnastic, musical, social, or literary. These existed not only in urban areas, but even in such agricultural regions as the hill country of Texas. All in all, it was possible for many German Americans to live for generations in German enclaves, whether rural or urban, never having to venture into the English-speaking world for education, church, recreation, or marriage partners. Not all did so, by any means, for American-born generations were attracted toward the cultural mainstream of the United States, even as the massive inflow of new German immigrants kept alive the culture of Germany. However, even the cultural mainstream of America began to take on features once peculiar to Germans. These included not only such old country traditions as lager beer, coleslaw, delicatessen, and the Christmas tree, but also such German improvisations on American soil as oatmeal and those all-American foods deriving their names from German cities, frankfurters, and hamburgers. Above all, perhaps, Germans profoundly influenced American recreational patterns. The innumerable innocent but secular and zestful recreations of the Germans, from songfests to bowling to parades, target shooting and swimming, were at first viewed by other Americans with suspicion and reproach, especially when they took place on Sunday, in contravention of more puritanical norms in the larger community. But ultimately, such peaceful and enjoyable activities, often engaged in by family groups, began to become part of the American way of life. Germans played a major role in making music a part of American life, not only by breaking down puritanical prejudices against singing, but also by promoting all kinds of music, from folk music and marching bands to the great symphony orchestras. Many of the leading American classical music conductors of the 19th century were of German ancestry, as were the overwhelming majority of the members of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra in the last half of the 19th century. Increasingly, as German immigration to the United States rose during the 19th century, the predominance of farmers among the immigrants declined. The rising urban component brought with them many artisan and industrial skills or entrepreneurial talents. Most Germans who worked in mid-19th century New York, Boston, Detroit, St. Louis, or Milwaukee were either skilled manual workers or were in non-manual occupations, while the Irish, for example, were in mostly unskilled or semi-skilled occupations in the same cities at the same time. Similarly, in San Francisco in 1870, 
38% of the Irish immigrants were unskilled, compared to only 7% of the Germans. Germans also tended to be well represented in business and the professions. In the middle of the 19th century, one-third of all the physicians in New York State were German. In Milwaukee at about the same time, nearly half of all the shopkeepers were German. The success and prominence of Germans in agriculture, industry, commerce, and the professions was not repeated in politics, however. In the 19th century, as in the 18th century, Germans tended to be underrepresented among those pursuing political careers, and the German electorate tended to be apathetic as well. Moreover, those Americans of German ancestry who did achieve distinction in politics, notably the Muhlenbergs in the 18th century, Karl Schurz and John Peter Altgeld in the 19th, and Herbert Hoover and Dwight D. Eisenhower in the 20th century, did so as spokesmen for the general population on broad national issues, not as ethnic representatives of German-American community special interests. The general political leanings of German-Americans in the 18th and 19th centuries tended to be more liberal or progressive than those of their contemporaries. However, there was no monolithic German position on the issues of the day. Although Germans tended to be anti-slavery throughout the history of that institution, there were many cross-currents, though no prominent German-American leaders were pro-slavery. Moreover, when a vote was taken in antebellum North Carolina to take away many legal rights of free Negroes, the German areas voted to let them keep those rights, while the state as a whole voted to abrogate their rights. When the Civil War came, a large German population in Missouri was credited with keeping that state in the Union, despite many Confederate sympathizers. On other issues of personal freedom, such as laws against drinking or laws restricting Sunday activities, the Germans voted for the freedom of the individual. Within their own community enclaves, Germans welcomed German Jews as members of such organizations as the Turnverein, singing groups, and other cultural organizations. German immigration to the United States peaked in the decade of the 1880s, when more than 1.4 million arrived on American shores. By the first decade of the 20th century, however, German immigration had fallen to less than one-fourth of that. Pioneering struggles of the 18th and 19th centuries gave way to very different kinds of adversity in the 20th century. Economically, the rise of mass production industry devalued and superseded many of the artisan skills among German workers, including many crafts associated with horse and buggy transportation, shoemaking, and furniture production. The rise of the meatpacking industry reduced the role of the German butcher shops, as the rise of mass marketing in general through department stores and supermarkets likewise eclipsed the German specialty shopkeepers. The declining importance of family farms and the rise of mechanized mass production agriculture also could not help adversely affect the vast number of German family farmers scattered across many states. International political developments likewise had their impact on German-Americans. The outbreak of the First World War in Europe in 1914 brought much condemnation of Germany in the United States. German-Americans were adversely affected, in part because of a generalized hostility to Germans and German culture, and perhaps more so because German-American spokesmen tended to try to justify the actions of their ancestral homeland, which was waging a war of aggression in Europe. When the United States ultimately joined the war against Germany, feelings ran higher still among Americans in general, though German-Americans loyally served in the U.S. military forces 
and America's leading fighter pilot was of German ancestry, Eddie Rickenbacker. Nevertheless, the German language was banished from many American high school curricula, as German music was banished from concert halls. Some marriage ceremonies no longer used wedding marches by Mendelssohn or Wagner. German books were removed from library shelves, and German-American newspapers were boycotted by advertisers and readers. While this anti-German hysteria did not reach the levels it reached in some other countries, such as Russia, Brazil, or Australia, it was real enough and painful enough to German-Americans. These attacks also hastened the demise of many German-American associations. Some of these organizations simply dropped any reference to Germany in their titles, as the Germania Life Insurance Company of New York changed its name to the Guardian Life Insurance Company, for example. While the anti-German hostility subsided quickly after the war, it nevertheless contributed to the already existing trend of declining cultural and social cohesion among Germans in the United States. In the early 20th century, Germans in many parts of the United States still married mostly other Germans, even in an urban center like New York City, where 90% of the population was non-German. Intermarriage increased with the passing decades, however. Other indices of assimilation included the decline of the large German-language press. German-language daily and weekly publications, numbering more than 700 in 1890, declined to barely 200 in 1920 and continued to decline to 81 in 1940 and to 33 by 1960. German cultural organizations likewise declined sharply over the years, as German-Americans became more assimilated and many disappeared into the larger society. The rise of Hitler and the Nazis in Germany during the 1930s led to efforts to recruit German-Americans to the cause, largely without success. A Nazi front organization, the German-American Bund, was established in 1936 with financial support from Germany and made headlines with spectacular rallies and fiery rhetoric, but it made little headway with most German-Americans. The organization disbanded when the United States entered the Second World War in 1941. In the larger society, there was no such hostility to German-Americans during World War II as there had been in World War I, and few found it noteworthy, much less controversial, that the American Army in Europe, the U.S. Pacific Fleet, and the American Air Force in Europe were all commanded by men of German ancestry. Over the years, Germans have made major contributions to many aspects of American society. In addition to the contributions of broad masses of German people in agriculture and industry, and of German food, customs, and attitudes toward recreation, Numerous individuals of German ancestry made historic contributions in various fields. Engineering history was made when John A. Roebling designed and built the Brooklyn Bridge, the first of many long-span suspension bridges which are now taken for granted, though the Brooklyn Bridge was a pioneering marvel in its day, made possible by the steel cables which Roebling also designed and produced. The genius of German-born engineer Charles Steinmetz, provided the basis on which the General Electric Corporation was built. Firms established by individuals of German ancestry have been among the leaders in many American industries, including optics, Bausch & Loam, wood products, Weyerhaeuser, automobiles, Chrysler, pianos, Steinway, Schnabel, organs, Wurlitzer, candy, Hershey, prepared food, Heinz, language instruction, Berlitz, 
and innumerable beer companies, including Anheuser-Busch, Miller, Coors, Pabst, Schlitz, and Blotz. Germans are no longer a distinctive group in America because they have become so much a part of American society, and that society has absorbed so many German cultural features, from kindergartens to Christmas trees to coleslaw. Yet it may be indicative of how long German cultural ties endured that the German language was spoken in childhood by such disparate 20th century American figures as famed writer H. L. Mencken, baseball stars Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, and by the Nobel Prize-winning economist George Steigler.